Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue, if you dare. Welcome back to the final thrilling conclusion of Agoraphobia 2019. Today's first segment comes from the Dark Lord of the Agora Podcast Network, Tom Daly, a sorcerer of dreadful power, master of shadows and of phantoms, foul in wisdom, cruel in strength, misshaping what he touches, twisting what he rules, whose domain is torment, and who's now come to regale you with a tale of loss, of fury, and of an ill-omened bird. Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door, only this and nothing more. Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow, vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow, for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, nameless here forevermore. 
and the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before so that now to still the beating of my heart i stood repeating tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door this it is and nothing more presently my soul grew stronger hesitating then no longer sir said i or madam truly your forgiveness i implore but the fact is i was napping and so gently you came rapping and so faintly you came tapping tapping at my chamber door that i scarce was sure i heard you here i opened wide the door darkness there and nothing more deep into that darkness peering long i stood there wondering fearing doubting dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before but the silence was unbroken and the stillness gave no token and the only word there spoken was the whispered word lenore this i whispered and an echo murmured back the word lenore merely this and nothing more back into the chamber turning all my soul within me burning soon again i heard a tapping somewhat louder than before surely said i surely that is someone at my window lattice let me see then what thereat is and this mystery explore let my heart be still a moment and this mystery explore tis the wind and nothing more open here i flung the shutter when with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore not the least obeisance made he not a minute stopped or stayed he but with mien of lord or lady perched above my chamber door perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door perched and sat and nothing more then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore though thy crest be shorn and shaven thou i said art sure no craven ghastly grim an ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's plutonian shore quoth the raven nevermore much i marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly though its answer little meaning little relevancy bore for we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door with such name as nevermore but the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word as if his soul in that one word he did outpour nothing farther then he uttered not a feather then he fluttered till i scarcely more than muttered other friends have flown before on the morrow he will leave me as my hopes have flown before then the bird said nevermore startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken doubtless said i what it utters is its only stock and store caught from some unhappy master whom on merciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore till the dirges and his hope that melancholy burden bore of never 
nevermore. But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking, fancy unto fancy, thinking, what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore, meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing, to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining, on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with lamp-lighting gloating over, she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, that God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite, and Nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, O oh, quaff this kind Nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed, thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home of horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven. Nevermore. Prophet, said I. Thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil. By that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore. Tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore. Clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven. Nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave me no black plume as token of thy lie thy soul hath spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart. Take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven. Nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor <sighs> shall be lifted nevermore. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. 
Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now, to administer the last rites to this year's revelries, is the terrible twosome from the cannonball, deadly Daniel Doughty, and Professor Claude Myron Goozer, masters of the aural Ludovico technique, who are ready to strap you down for an engaging ontological and epistemological discussion of Gothic literature. Welcome to an extra spooky vampy edition of the Cannonball, especially for Agora Podcast Network special Agoraphobia series, uh, which we do every Halloween season. And I, I have to imagine that the uh, the folks who named the network uh, had this particular joke name in mind when they named it such, because it just it fits perfectly, right? It's, it's a great joke. But anyway, uh, my name is Daniel Doughty. I am here with, uh, as always, with my esteemed interlocutor. Uh, maven of all things literary, Dr. Claude Myron Guzer. We are typically the hosts of uh, the Cannonball, um, but now we are going to do a special, just a special little episode. We're still going to wrap with you about literature, about uh, you know, writing and culture. Um, but, you know, it's, it's Halloween time. It's a little bit spooky. And Claude, I have something I've been very curious about. And let me explain <laughs> why. Um... So for anyone who listens to the show, uh, you probably know by now that I am a bit of a, a, a bit of an unreconstructed record store guy. I was one of those, uh, back when there was such a thing as record stores, I just age- dated myself severely. Um, but I would spend my, my meager blockbuster paycheck at the CD store every week. I would talk to the guys. I was, I'm, I'm heavy into music. I love it. 
Um, especially in the kind of, uh, I guess, what you might term the indie rock vein. It was the 90s when I first got into this stuff. And so anything looking back and sort of, you know, teasing out where that all came from, I, I love it. I dig into it. Um, so one of my favorite things to do is to sort of go back and uh, YouTube has been a real godsend that there is such a massive treasure trove of old albums you could never find. People just uploaded live footage of bands and stuff. So it's a really fun way to sort of dig in and look into all those bands that you might have heard of once while talking to the record store guy who you knew thought he was too cool for you, but he still like gave you the time of day, I guess. To go back and sort of like, you know, educate yourself all over again. And one of my big blind spots in all this uh, has been goth rock sort of the goth genre of music. <laughs> and I found myself sort of getting into it ass backwards because I've long been a big fan of the post-punk sort of uh, aesthetic and era. The you know, that, That's a term that means a lot of things, but it was originally sort of was biographical. These were the bands of music that people who had come up in the punk explosion of this 1977-78 got into after they got tired of the whole punk thing. Um and so I've really gotten into a lot of like what you might call spooky post-punk. You're kind of the, the, that in the Joy Division vein, <laughs> the kind that's all atmosphere and sort of jagged guitars and stuff. And I realized also that I was veering into goth rock. I was started getting, I mean, on the, on the recommendations, I started getting Bauhaus recommendations. And I started mm-hmm. getting curious. This is a long-winded way of saying, how in the world did a term which originally applied to Romanized Germanic military families come to be applied to a kind of music associated with teased up hair and, and you know and 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 zombie makeup and like you know white chalky makeup and sort of vamping around on stage where how where are the how are the links forged how is the chain forged and i realized i'm gonna have to go to claude because being an expert in all things literary and cultural he could tell me the answer so claude what is the origin of the gothic aesthetic? Okay. Um, th- this is going to be a little bit convoluted because uh, <laughs> it, it, it's funny that you're coming to this uh, sort of late in life. I, I came to it very, very early in life. Uh, I-, I was there not exactly at the beginning, but I guess as much of the beginning as you could be in a small southern town. Um, before the whole goth thing had really sort of reified into a thing mm-hmm. um I, I was sort of i guess proto-goth uh i was definitely into the industrial stuff mm-hmm. um that sort of edge of metal but skinny puppy was my favorite band uh always sort of drawn to the darker side and i i can't exactly trace the etymology of goth or at least i can't do so right now give me another six weeks and i probably could <laughs> right but, um, but i can tell you a little bit about the background of how how the the literary terms developed how they've developed over time how they've shifted how they've changed it what they've signified how they've changed it no how they've changed what they've signified, um, sort of how they signified, and give you some examples of what the genre means. Now, this is really sort of a 101. Anyone looking for uh, more depth, I email us. I can tell you some other places to go. But for the sake of the, this agoraphobia episode, 
I think this really has to be sort of like the surface level stuff that we can bring to, mm-hmm. I guess, at least the 80s or the 90s, maybe even to now. Yeah. I think about the the sort of darker aspects of literature, of cultural production, and how they manifest themselves and why they manifest themselves. Yeah. All right. So to, to sort of start off, um, we, we typically think of Gothic and Gothicism as the, the dark, spooky shit. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm being glib, and it's also late at night, and I'm tired. But um, the, that's kind of what it comes down to. We think of it as being atmospheric, darkly atmospheric, and in some ways connected to the supernatural. And that's kind of it. That has mm-hmm. something to do with the original source. But uh, the Gothic, and I'm thinking here particularly of the Gothic novel, it really is an Enlightenment phenomenon. So the Gothic, for all of its spooky affect and uncanny weirdness, is really rooted in the Enlightenment, the, the presumed age of the rational, where empirical reasoning and a scientific worldview were rapidly dispensing with superstition. And an asterisk goes here because uh, much recent thinking has worked to critique the underlying Western chauvinism and the claims for an enlightenment epistemology, as well as the claims for universal objectivism. Um, you know, we now, <laughs> I, I think, are, are comfortably aware of the ways that the enlightenment was a much more complicated phenomenon. Yeah. And how the epistemology of the Enlightenment was also an epistemology involved in the development of the tropes of racism and other certain kinds of shifts in superstition, let's call them that. Yeah. Right? But um, be that as it may, the, the sort of presumed Enlightenment rational worldview was one where reason and empirical observation would dispel beliefs in the supernatural or the the superstition right right right. so early gothic literature in english and okay i'm gonna delve into french at certain points here um like just skim the surface of it yeah right but for the most part we're talking about english literature here so early gothic literature in english actually espoused an Enlightenment ideology. So Horace Walpole's uh, Castle of Otranto, published in 1764, really sort of exemplifies this. Castle of Otranto is pretty much Scooby-Doo. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> right. It is. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. With, but with much more elegant syntax, and it lacks a talking dog. Okay. Two, so so, so story... far, two strikes against it, but go on. <laughs> right. So the story is a presumed translation of a medieval Italian text that tells the convoluted tale of an aristocrat divorcing his wife to marry the fiancé of his recently dead son, thereby forcing the fiancé to flee through a crumbling castle overrun with secret stairways and atmosphere and curses. Um, That's pretty much it. There's lots of spooky doings, even a ghostly animated suit of armor. But at the end of the day, it wasn't an actual spook that was doing the spooking. It was just people doing horrible things because motivated by fear of a curse. Uh Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 straight from the Scooby-Doo opening where there's that haunted armor walking around right. glowing in the dark because somebody painted it with a fossil. And I think cane. it's interesting that it's not even a matter of there's nothing supernatural happening, but it's it, everything is fully explicable, but it is motivated by fear of the supernatural. Itself. Yeah, that, yeah, that's it. 
That's it. And so there, there are a couple of important points here. Uh, first is the time of the tale. Uh, the 18th century English presumption is that this kind of story is more believable if it occurred in the Middle Ages because that time would be much more likely to be quote-unquote superstitious. Right. Now, you and I ha have sort of been through this. <laughs> I, I really think uh, the turning point for us, please listen to our podcast, but the turning point for us was really sort of Don Quixote where we delved into the background of what counts as medieval, what is and is right. not medieval, who is medieval, um, why is this so-called Middle Ages considered a dark backwards um, it is from the viewpoint of the Renaissance, which wants to establish itself in opposition to that time period. Right. But, you know, to, to call the period from, let's say, roughly 1,000 to 1,400 as this kind of superstitious backwater ignores the complicated thinking and reasoning of that time period. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're, we're really the... Uh, Anyone just absorbing anything through just sort of osmosis absorbs that kind of renaissance yeah. slash uh, enlightenment um, kind of. You know how when you're like eight or nine years old and you make a really big deal out of hating Barney because you're over that baby yeah. stuff? That's exactly what that was. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it kind of is because you just, it's in the air, it's assumed, it's an assumed point of view and you assume everybody has it. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, the I think as we've explored as many other actual thinkers and scholars, you're an actual thinker and scholar. I'm an idiot. Have <laughs> explored uh, the the Middle Ages aren't exactly this like grim, dark you know time period. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not without its horrors as every time is. But okay, you get the idea. Right. So the the 18th century casting of these texts in the middle ages is on purpose it's like okay that's a time period in which people actually believed in this stuff so okay let's put it back there but the place matters too all right so not only is the setting medieval but it's also italian and therefore the predominant christian denomination is catholicism mm -hmm. and catholicism was enlightenment shorthand for corrupt backwardsness right uh especially in england where you, right, right. You, you have this sort of tradition of displacing your your cultural anxieties on the Southern Catholic nations. Uh, you can look at the 17th century revenge tragedies, which are going to come back into play as part of this phenomenon. And they're, they're kind of proto-Gothic in their outlook. Uh, allow me to digress. Yeah, yeah. Um, the 17th century revenge tragedy, it always takes place in either Spain or Italy, because those are your Catholic countries, and we're talking about Elizabethan England, where Catholicism is outlawed. Um, there's always some corrupt aristocrat who has done something horrible. There's a revenger who either goes insane or has to pretend to insanity in order to ingratiate himself into the aristocratic court. I don't know how insanity ingratiates you, uh, ingratiates you into the aristocratic court, but be that as it may. <laughs> it's um, an opportunity for noblesse oblige, I suppose. <laughs> right, I suppose. So uh, the revenger pretends crazy and then gets in there and slaughters everyone. Uh, so you get all kinds of lurid, creepy, grotesque sexuality, mm -hmm. as well as lurid, creepy, grotesque uh, forms of violence. 
Um, if you're looking for a, a great riff on the revenge tragedy, Pinchon's Crying of Lot 49 writes a revenge tragedy into the middle of it. Yeah. That is so over the top, it actually kind of gets it. Yeah. Um, my favorite <laughs> revenge tragedy is uh, Ford's Tis Pity, She's a Whore. Uh, just for the title alone, but it's a revenge tragedy, which, <laughs> right. uh, the, it, of course it takes place in a Southern Catholic state. And, uh, at the beginning of the play, this young nobleman is obsessed over, uh, the potential for an incestuous relationship with his sister. Uh, he thinks he's found a loophole in canon law to allow it. Um, at the end of the first act, he confronts her and says, hey, check this out. I think we can actually sleep together. Here's my reasoning. She says, cool, and they go into his bedroom. That's the end of the first act. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so that's, long story short, there's this long English uh, tradition of kind of like othering the the medieval Catholic states or the Renaissance Catholic states, but the, the Enlightenment really sort of took it forward with the Gothic novel. All right, so... Um, that's that's kind of what's going on with Castle of Otranto and Radcliffe's 1794 novel, The Mysteries of Udolfo, works similarly. A mm-hmm. heroine is set to inherit an estate in France, another Catholic country. She's taken to a gloomy, crumbling castle in Italy by a nefarious uncle, taken from France to Italy, and set upon with tons of creepy little contrivances to coerce her into giving up her estate. At the end of the day, it wasn't a ghost. It was her creepy uncle who just wanted the land. Right. Um, Mysteries of Udolfo and Castle of Otranto, they, they have this reveal moment where, you know, they pull the rubber mask off. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, it's not a rubber mask. It's a knight's helmet and, you know, it's this other thing. But there's this reveal. Right. Okay. So, again, there's an emphasis on the supernatural happening elsewhere. And our shrewd heroine, Emily Saint-Aubert, is intelligent enough eventually to see through the spookiness and unmask the real villain at the end. And both of these Enlightenment or Enlightenment-adjacent novels really rely on the idea that the affect of superstition is a lot of fun, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, reason needs to master the situation and illustrate that there's no actual supernatural influence, just some really bad people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think what was pretty interesting, that description of the, uh, the Udolfo, one is that it almost sounds like the uh, the play Gaslight, from which we get the yeah. widely known term. Where the whole the whole point of that is that this you know a, a woman is is uh, well, it's just kind of you know it's not quite the same, but rather that there's you know mysterious goings on happening, and it's because of the malfeasance of a man trying to take advantage of a woman and and, and break her mental state, basically. Yeah, well, that was. Um... That was also sort of, uh, well, kind of in a convoluted opposite way. Wilkie Collins' Woman in White. Yeah. Uh, Woman in White is about this, um, basically a long con to disinherit this woman and steal her estate. And there's this kind of detective figure who... um, figures it out and thwarts this nefarious nihilistic Italian count. Hey, it's always Italian. Apologies to any Italian listeners out there. We promise we are just conveying the sentiments of 
English people from a couple centuries Well, ago. no, I mean, it really does seem like there's this long-standing English tradition of othering Italy. But yeah, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, so he he sort of figures this out and thwarts this. It's like a Sherlock Holmes novel or, or a Sherlock Holmes story, except it's completely domesticated. Or it, it's completely about um, the situation whose import really only matters to this one particular family. It's less about, you know, oh, these are matters of state secrets, which is how a lot of home stuff kind of goes after a while. Yeah. Uh, because Conan Doyle had to turn Holmes into this kind of national superhero in this way. And, uh, but it's, it's, much more centered on um, just this particular horrible thing that's happening. It's sort of like Blue Velvet, right? When you think about yeah, Blue yeah. Velvet, what is Frank trying to do? He's basically kidnapped this woman's husband and son in order to force her into a sexual, into this coerced sexual situation, which is horrifying because. I mean, it's sort of like this isn't about a large-scale plot to do X, Y, or Z. This is about just traumatizing someone. Yeah, yeah, just tormenting you know? somebody. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's sadism, you know, to a sense degree. Anyway, yeah. I, I digress. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one thing. The, so you. So the, the Gothic sort of has its origin in these Enlightenment ideas about. Uh, the triumph of rationality, right? About the yeah. the ripping away of the mask. But of course, that's also coming on the heels of the Romantic movement. And I think what most people would really associate the Gothic aesthetic with. Uh, so where's the turning point? How does it, how, where does the shift happen? Okay. Um, in 1796, uh, Lewis writes The Monk, or publishes The Monk. The Monk has all of those trappings right all of the old gothic trappings it's about this corrupt monk who sells his soul to satan in medieval spain and there's all this horrible you know lurid nonsense that takes place but he actually sells his soul <laughs> lucifer appears at the end um it's it, it's this weird moment uh where the the Enlightenment trappings are still sort of kind of there. That othering of Catholicism, that uh, sort of like let's let's take all of our cultural anxieties and push them down south, mm -hmm. is right there. But by the end, it kind of sort of is literalized. Like yeah, they they're talking about actual physical embodiments of evil. And when I say Lucifer makes an appearance at the end, Lucifer makes an appearance at the end. He comes <laughs> right. in the middle of this auto de fe and sort of steals this guy's soul. All right. So you, you have this weird moment where it's sort of like the bridge between um, the, the sort of 18th century anti-superstitious stance, but the anti-superstitious trappings are used to illustrate this kind of superstitious story yeah right yeah so things really sort of begin to shift in the 19th century and writers in the period commonly called the romantic era felt that the enlightenment thinkers had overemphasized an approach to existence based on the empirical 
You know? Yeah. So in, in short, they found the Enlightenment claims to an absolute rationality short-sighted and insufficient for accounting for the wild variety of human experiences. So if Candide's dictum at the end of Voltaire's novel, yes, but we must tend our garden, i.e. keep your head down, don't think too much, work and get paid, mm-hmm. is taken as a metonym for the Enlightenment view of the good life, then we can kind of see that it can't quite account for a whole other range of experiences that make us human, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the data-driven life, which reduces all to nothing but numbers, Okay, it can allow you to do certain things, but it doesn't account for all of our experiences. All right, so that sent the romantics looking for other modes of experience or other modes of thinking. And here we find a reinvestment in exploring the supernatural and working the supernatural as supernatural into the landscape of Gothic literature. Yeah. And so an interest in the supernatural really abounds in romantic literature, but it's typically not ghouls for the sake of ghouls. Rather, it serves to explore either a social, political, theological, or psychological topic. And the one I always love to turn to is Coleridge's Christabel. I think more people re- need to read this poem. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a poem that we actually brought up on the Cannonball before. Yeah. Uh, Christabel is the tale of a young woman in medieval England. It's England, not Spain or Italy. Yeah, it was, it's wakes... still displaced in time, but it's being brought back. I guess, you know, it was still Catholic back then, so it's still, you know, it, it, it's superstitious <laughs> enough, I suppose. Yeah, it's superstitious enough, but um, she she wakes disturbed one night thinking of this nice young knight, right? So she's woken up in the middle of her sleep with what appears to be a kind of erotic reverie. Uh, so in her fluster, she runs out to the woods to pray, but who does she find but a young woman, Geraldine, who claims she just escaped from some abductors. Christabel takes her back to the castle, ignoring a bunch of eerie warnings that this woman isn't what she seems. The two undress and lay down naked together, and Christabel sees something in Geraldine that gets her even more flustered. Mm-hmm. Then the two sleep to wake the next morning with Christabel growing steadily weaker and Geraldine gaining, gaining strength. And so... It's not a vampire story in Coleridge's hands, but that's only because the eerie supernatural stuff that Coleridge works with hasn't yet been codified into the recognizable vampire mythos yet. Yeah, yeah, like it's this kind of proto... It would be, I don't know, it would be anachronistic to even call it proto-vampirism, but this he's, he's clearly tapping into the same kinds of threads that would later become, like you said, codified into the blood-sucking undead. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so weird how that happens. Okay, that really sort of happens with Sheridan Lefnou, who blatantly rips off Christabel and turns it into <laughs> uh, his story, Carmilla. I mean, it, it's it's almost like a shot-for-shot remake of, of Christabel, yeah. Carmilla is. Except it adds in this one minor detail of the, the, the fangs and the scars in the neck and the actual blood drinking. Oh, wow. And, and then Bram Stoker takes Carmilla and just rips it off and turns it into um, Dracula. So it, it, if anything, the, the vampire genre is kind of a vampire in and of itself and that it keeps stealing from the past to sort of resuscitate the past it's it's the same imagined stuff over and over again uh sort of recycled 
Um, but it doesn't have really that much to do with actual, I guess, actual folklore on the ground. It's really sort of imaginatively invented by Coleridge. All right, so um, we we have in in Christabel a, a story of a young woman's arousal finding outlet in a way that Coleridge's culture clearly di- disapproves of. Right. which ultimately drains the woman of her vital life essence. Um, Coleridge is is basically writing about a woman who is aroused, and yet the culture was so scared of women's arousal and what that would mean and how that sort of thwarts patriarchal ambitions and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. it finds outlet in what to our eyes looks like a homoerotic relationship, which I think to our eyes is, yeah, okay, whatever. And yeah, sure. To <laughs> the 19th, yeah, why, why not? Right? And to the 19th century, uh, that would have been threatening. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so Coleridge actually takes this and turns it into a meditation on evil. Yeah. All right. Um, Coleridge's aim with the story was to provide a counterpoint to Milton's Paradise Lost, which attempted to justify the ways of God to man, i.e. to examine evil and explain why evil exists. And Christabel is ultimate. And one more time, I want to reiterate, not my terms, mm-hmm. Coleridge's terms. Um, he clearly identifies um, homoeroticism with what he would have termed the unnatural or something evil. Right, right. I don't. Some sort, some sort of, sure some sort of, uh, yeah, some sort of uncanny otherness or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's an unfinished work. Uh, Coleridge was sort of famous for writing these unfinished works. Uh, it breaks off at a certain point in part two, and there's an afterward where Coleridge suggests that the reason is because evil or whatever was evil to his mind is too enticing, right? Um, Christabel's father's castle is still in mourning for her mother, who died long, long ago. And as a result, the castle and everyone in it exists in a kind of living death. And the only exciting thing is the succubus Geraldine. And the only thing really animating the poem is the homoeroticism mm-hmm. that for Coleridge represented evil. Uh, it's almost as if he had an inkling that maybe eroticism was potentially an animating feature of existence and not necessarily something to be shunned as dreadful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's sort of like the, the Harold Bloom actually wrote about this in uh, one of his early books like from the 50s or 60s on romanticism where you find in Christabel's father's castle it, it's it's a living death it, it's just this sort of exponential decay into this this deadening nothingness this deadening of the senses this deadening of experience it's just dead and Geraldine is this kind of shocking of everything back to life with the erotic yeah um she's way much more interesting and way much more enticing than anything else in that castle and how are you going to match that right yeah you can't and that's sort of where where coleridge had to turn away all right so be that as it may christabel really introduces a lot of the motifs of the vampire myth 
And it illustrates this shift in the Romantic era of taking the supernatural seriously as subject matter, if only to explore other psychological dimensions. Right. And to, to sort of bring this home in a way that I, I think people are probably much, or listeners are probably much more familiar with, um, yeah, probably two listeners out there, if that, have read <laughs> Christabel, um, but everyone's read Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. The Brothers Grimm sort of was this attempt to go out and, I guess, cultivate this kind of folk wisdom and find in the supernatural or in these folk tales that deal with the uncanny or the sort of transmundane, as I think you put it once. Yeah, um, yeah. Some kind of truth that runs counter to the Enlightenment, to basic empirical understanding. Um, but there's something else that I want to throw in there is uh, one of the things that you also have in this period right in in the 19th century typically later 19th century is the rise of uh industrialization like the industrial revolution has already kicked in in, in england and the shifts in printing actually make a lot more lurid material available to the public yeah so you get the rise of the penny dreadful and penny dreadfuls <laughs> That's pretty much an apt name. They're really gross <laughs> right. and grotesque, and it's, they're, right. It's often, all it's all spectacle, you know. Yeah, yeah. But it's sort of like it, it's spectacle in the same way that, like a Lifetime movie, is spectacle. Um, they trade in sort of cheap sentimentality, uh, lurid, grotesque details, and then cheap. I guess moralization by the end sure right um but it, it's a, a a sort of marker uh and and they're often um they're they're very exploitative and they're often sort of cynically written uh the king of them was that growl and poe uh poe wasn't necessarily the dark, grim, gruesome, oh, I'm the creepy outsider. That definitely <laughs> was the look that he cultivated. Yeah. But a lot of the the lurid stuff he wrote was sort of um, cheap sensationalism to get readership. It yeah, was clickbait. Yeah, yeah I, I guess uh, honestly what I, what I was, you know, the way you've been explaining how the Gothic developed, you know, over the course of the Romantic period, I immediately thought of the fall of the House of Usher. Um, yeah just as uh which i get i don't know if that falls within the gothic you know proper or whatever but like it 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 hits all these hallmarks we've been talking about as well as kind of i guess playing it playing it a little like uh what's the word giving a light touch to the supernatural stuff um yeah which is certainly there and it's absolutely like the the story doesn't make any sense unless we assume the supernatural is at work but it is not sort of highlighted necessarily. Well, the American Gothic is weird. I mean, we're digressing all over the place, so let's just jump into it. The American Gothic is weird, and the Southern Gothic is even weirder. Uh, both tend to have this anxiety or, or express this kind of cultural anxiety about 
the persistence of the errors of the past into the present. Yeah. I mean, that that's kind of what Dracula does. And we'll get to Dracula in a second. But um, look at uh, all of Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, Hawthorne's sort of obsessed by this national guilt, or, or I guess this regional guilt, over, you know, the, the Puritan hypocrisy and the witch trials and Hawthorne's own family interaction with that. Uh, one of his ancestors was really one of the worst possible judges that you could have in the Salem witch trials. Just yeah. a, a horrible bastard of a human being. Um, and, and Hawthorne wanted to take that on as this kind of original sin in the nation. Right, the the, the yeah. national outlook in the nineteenth century, or the American national outlook in the nineteenth century, was this kind of um, cheerful, can-do, uh, basically sort of like that nineteen eighties. Yeah, know, the whole the whole morning in America malarkey. Yeah, that that's kind of it. Um, Hawthorne wanted to explore this other kind of psychological darkness that was lurking back there that he thought was part and parcel with yeah, uh, all yeah. this other stuff. Uh, it's the persistence of the past into the present. And then look at Edgar Allan Poe, and we can't forget that Poe was a Southern writer. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, in uh, Baltimore. He was, a, he was a Southerner. Raised in Richmond. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Even, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot in Poe where if you go looking for it, there's this weird kind of aristocratic or even master-slave relationship. Mm, And you find the persistence of weird aristocratic trappings into the present, and that persistence is damning. Uh, House of Usher is a perfect case where it's sort of like a mockery of aristocratic pretense. And what is America but a place where we threw off aristocracy only to establish aristocratic oligarchies in the south right yeah so yeah there was there, um a, I, I this again a, a sort of slight digression but i just i cannot this is going to kill me that i can't remember the the name of it now but i actually just recently read a uh, a book by a scholar on the topic of the um the survival of feudal labor relationships specifically but feudal property and labor relationships into what we call little l liberalism in the united states of america yeah. um, so I, th- I think so that, that's that's astonishing to me that there was this we have these connections in the literature of the time and also like i just read this extremely dry but very well argued <laughs> you know, history book about it well then okay you can take it to the 20th century and you've got someone like faulkner who is trafficking in the persistence of the past into the present as horror i mean yeah, like yeah. Rose for emily i I'm, I'm just touching on rose for emily because it's the easiest one to address in however long we've got for this but rose for emily is all about this kind of vampiric ghost who won't go away yeah uh a, a cannibalistic necrophiliac possessing ghost who nobody can get rid of yeah and the attitude of the place towards that ghost is complicated yeah um it's it's all about the changes that are taking place that emily gerson will not allow for herself or for those around her um 
So in in America, it, it's often got this kind of like political valence. Yeah. So I I, I wanted to bring up the penny dreadfuls uh, because they're a marker of industrialization. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're cheap throwaways. Right. But I also wanted to bring them up because they're anticipated by this guy who I, I think more people should read him. Um, De Quincey. Uh, he did this book called Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Oh, um, okay. I've I've heard of that. But I, yeah, I, I don't I don't know much about it, but I've heard of it. Yeah, Thomas De Quincey. He 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 was kind of a uh, one of those child prodigies. Poor kid went to um, this phenomenal boarding school, uh, was too smart for it, uh, either got kicked out or left. Uh, basically hitchhiked to London and then just squatted. Yeah. Um, and and wrote these fantastic memoirs just about like these weird situations that he would get in. But he, along with many others, got accidentally addicted to opium. Um, the, there was a, a very similar phenomenon in the 19th century, like late 18th, early 19th century. Very similar phenomenon to the opioid addiction today. Yeah. Uh, opium was being prescribed for everything as a kind of cure-all and at one point it was cheaper for him to as, as far as I understand it as far as I believe the biographers think it goes uh, it was cheaper for him to get opium than to buy food and that could like quell the stomach pains and he got hooked and he was this really fascinating thinker and fascinating writer and he garnered this reputation and he published his memoirs and they're fascinating for his self-analysis. Yeah. Like what he can do is analyze his own nightmares in this really fascinating, weird, creepy way. And um, he had a taste for the Gothic. He wrote this essay uh, called The Knocking at the Gates of Macbeth where he analyzes the porter scene as necessary for Macbeth because he says the comedy is there to exacerbate the horror. Uh, I, and, You know what? I need to read this essay because I feel the same way because, <laughs> man, it just, boy, does the comedy fall flat to me in that scene. Well, it's he says it's there to break up the horror because if you go from hideous thing to hideous thing, uh, it's it's too much, but what it does is sort of like breaks in with this weird thing that's just morbid and strange. He did an essay called "Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts," mm-hmm. where it's this uh, imagined club of murderers talking about their, um, I guess, aesthetic murders. I mean, it completely anticipates uh, Hannibal Lecter. Right, and yeah, yeah. murder as aesthetics, uh, which is kind of like taking aestheticism to its furthest end. And then, um, but he he did this other thing, which which I think is uh, connected to how we might think of the rise of the Gothic and the rise of the lurid in the popular imagination. All right, so De Quincey, uh, he he was recognized as a fantastic writer, um, <clears throat> and he he made friends with Coleridge and Wordsworth. Who saw in him, you know, something of a kindred spirit, but also, you know, this this dude that they wanted to nurture and, you know, get him on his feet so that he could maybe kick the addiction a little bit and and actually do some writing. So they took him up to the lake country and set him up with an easy job. 
in the hopes that he would, you know, kick back, relax a little bit, wean himself off of opium and not have to worry too much so that he could get his health back and become, you know, a brilliant genius writer. Okay. His easy job was running the local newspaper. Yeah. Okay. So it's just like whatever local rag. It was so boring. And he got so tired of it. And he had the hardest time kicking opium because it was so boring. Like, there was nothing to do in the light country. Yeah. So he's he's out there sweating it out. He's bored out of his mind. He doesn't have anything to do. Um, he has no interest whatsoever in um, writing about the, the sort of farmer's problems in the local rag. He's got pages to fill, and he has no connections up there, and he can't get any writers going. So what he does is starts basically just making clippings of the, the London crime sheets, like hmm, yeah. all the – just the police blotter like making clippings of that and printing it in the back of this, you know, local rag. Um, subscriptions go through the roof. Everyone wants to read the, the lurid horror tales. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so, I mean, so he really, he was, so this is like the, he was the first true crime podcaster. More or less. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and it was all because um, he didn't, he didn't want to kick opium. Um, there's this <laughs> perfect, <laughs> there's this other, perfect. Okay. So anyway, there's this other thing uh, that's sort of taking place in the late 18th, early 19th century, which is Orientalism. Um, there, there's a text that I I know of and don't really know, but it's Vatek, but written by William Beckford. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this Orientalist tale about this sultan who has magic and goes off throughout the Middle East doing all kinds of weird gothic stuff. Um, it's that basic othering. Yeah. Right? But it, it, it's kind of an extension of that. We'll take all of this magic stuff and displace it into another place in time. Right. But in this case, it's displacing it into what are essentially the British colonies. Yeah, yeah. And Byron really exploits Orientalism as a sort of gothic trapping throughout his whole career. So you've got all of these different strands kind of coming into it in the 19th century, Um partially playing on that enlightenment colonialist othering aspect partially playing on this interest in the supernatural as what's going on in our backyard that is in opposition to the enlightenment or what is a kind of truth that is non-empirical and these all get sort of woven together and that's where you get something like dracula I was gonna say, yeah, this also, especially like the the Orientalism and and things like that's I, that's absolutely where Dracula's at, um, which is also this kind of this bridge from we've already mentioned some of the 20th century Gothic, but I think Dracula bridges this 19th century to the 20th century Gothic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I I'm I don't mean to overlook Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein is one of the most important novels of that time period and mm-hmm. I would argue that it's one of the most important novels to come out of the English tradition oh without a doubt um, yeah it's it's 
it's weird because the Shelleys weren't the anti-scientific couple that you might think of when you think uh, romantic. Yeah. But Mary Shelley was definitely interested in in really exploring the ways that the scientific discourse of her day and of the Enlightenment and of our own day. I mean, she sort of anticipates the critiques of the 20th and 21st century. Yeah, yeah. The way that scientific discourse is often, off, often sort of conceiving of itself as a mastery over time and space. Yeah. And she puts that completely in patriarchal terms. I mean, in Frankenstein, the way that Victor thinks about nature, it's always personified as feminine, and he wants to master the feminine and in some really creepy language intrude into nature and rip it apart and rip it open and see how it works it's really grotesque yeah yeah um so there's this anti-enlightenment critique going all throughout frankenstein it's extraordinarily important and the the sort of psychological aspects of frankenstein really anticipates um a lot of that Victorian stuff. Mm-hmm. The most of Frankenstein isn't going through the charnel house and doing all that sort of stuff. It's the anxiety that this thing that you did that you've tried to, um, I, I guess, cordon off, yeah. keeps coming back in some way, shape, or form. It's, right. It's, it's closer to Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, it's the dread. Yeah, it's that's that's absolutely it. Yeah. I mean, we can, yeah. honestly, we can save, uh, we're, we're probably going to need to dedicate an episode to Frankenstein on down the line. And I, just as an oh, aside, absolutely. I, I think it is quite interesting that we're talking about the Gothic tradition, and two novels have come up that, in, in my reading on the science fiction genre, have been sort of pinpointed by uh, the respective scholars as the origin of the science fiction tradition um yeah uh brian aldous places it at frankenstein alexi panchin places it at the castle at otranto um okay so this is very this is kind of interesting to me as a, as a science fiction genre head that like clearly the sort of the the kissing cousins nate you know relationship of these these kinds of genres you know kind of clear um oh yeah i mean like in the 19th century the the thing that i guess i'm trying to point out here is that okay science fiction uh horror the detective novel yeah um yeah. the the sort of gothic romance uh the penny dreadful all of the, the the orientalist tendencies all of this is sort of mixed up together i, I mean it, it's sort of like part and parcel with each other and and it doesn't sort of really get separated out until you move later on down the line right right when there's this kind of intense focus on classification and breaking it down into what is what and how what operates according to what but it's it's all intertwined yeah um it's it's difficult to separate these strands i mean so much of the sherlock holmes stories in the early you know stories of detection are are orientalist stories like mm-hmm. okay and i want to make sure everybody understands how i'm using that that's a, a literary term sort of developed most closely by edward said to look at the ways that western cultures or european cultures um particularly colonizing cultures look at the colonized as other in this exotic way right 
And so much of the Sherlock Holmes stories or early detection stories are about something exotic out there coming back and causing either criminal mischief or supernatural mischief mm-hmm. in the the colonizing nation. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's there's there's all a, connected together. That's right, and there's a lot of there's a lot of threads to pluck at. Which is uh, I, this is this is one of, I think this is one of those shows that we do where we realize like we have so much more to say about everything than sing <laughs> <laughs> to the topic. Well, but, but, but okay. Oh, well, sorry. That go brings ahead. us back. That brings us back to Dracula. Which, yeah, okay, yeah. The the plot of Dracula is exactly the plot of Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Um, civilized, quote unquote, civilized white European goes out there. Something happens out there. He comes back and brings out there with him. Back with him, right. Threatens right. to destroy civilization. Um, but Dracula is, as far as we're talking about the Gothic novel, it's weird because it breaks all the rules. Um, if the Gothic began as an attempt to embrace reason and realism and dispel superstition, um, Dracula is that Dracula is the antithesis of that impulse. Yeah, it's the complete uh, inversion of this, the sort of the origin of the Gothic aesthetic. Yeah, Dracula is all about how science and technology are no match for the dark supernatural evil that lurks in the shadows of the European past to come back and plague the future. So, so much of Dracula is about the way science and progress fail when confronted with the quote-unquote hidden wisdom of folk culture. The heroes in the novel have access to all kinds of newfangled gizmos and gadgets. Mm -hmm. They're on the cutting edge of technology. Seward records his diary entries on wax cylinder. Quincy Morris uses the most up-to-date repeater rifles. Uh, So much of the transportation takes place by train, right? Which is archaic now, but that was cutting edge at the time. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it's actually technolo- technology and political advancement that brings Dracula to London. Um, Harker uses the trains to actually get to Transylvania, and the Count is only allowed to own land in London due to the relatively recent land reform acts of the Victorian age that allowed foreigners to own land in Britain. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, not, I'm, from here to describe that, I'm astonished that like the Dracula story has not become a big canard for the Brexit types. Yeah, <laughs> like can you believe we let Romanians into England and look at that—they're draining our versions of blood. Well, there's there's actually um, oh shoot, uh, the 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 name of it is escaping me. There there was a Catalan author mm-hmm. who did this vampire story about these enlightenments um, or these later sort of vampire hunters who have to hunt this vampire who is sort of representative of that kind of repressive fascist past. Oh, um, yeah, th- yeah. There's this way that the, the vampire keeps um, keeps recurring as this thing that it, 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 it's like um, like what we were just talking about with Poe and Faulkner. It's the past that, that sort of returns to haunt you. But yeah, in, in Dracula, it's the past that returns to haunt you because... The present has gotten too progressive. Yeah. Um, so the in the face of what we're meant to believe is pure evil, the heroes have to revert to folk superstition to thwart the vampire. Right. So guided by Van Helsing, Holmwood, Seward, Morris, and Harker go so far as to brandish crosses as a form of defense 
There's a subtle embrace of Catholicism within that gesture, as it suggests a return to the iconography of a pre-Protestant mode of belief. Hmm. Yeah. Right. So, so they have to go back to superstition. So, in effect, Dracula takes the Enlightenment ideals of the early Gothic and subverts them. Yeah. So it kind of comes full circle. Um, and that kind of now, sets the Dracula, stage for yeah. the kind of the gothic aesthetic as, as we know it. And I know we have to skip over a lot, but I was really interested yeah, in your yeah. biographical element about uh, having been sort of there in the incipient goth movement. Because as we understand, like the goth aesthetic today is very much imbued with otherworldliness, with uh, the supernatural, with spookiness in general. And so it's kind of, yeah, that kind of flipped on its head thing of like, you know, the, you know, Scooby-Doo is the least goth thing imaginable. Right, because it's it's right, it's right. it's eliminating the 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 uncanny. It's taking it away. Um, so it's kind of fascinating. There was this there was this reversal. But sort of what what do you think led to that kind of the emergence of a a goth aesthetic in sort of American popular culture that that you happen to be a, a part of? Uh, repetition. Um, <laughs> the no no no. I, 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 okay, I'm not being glib here. Um, okay, by the 1890s, it, it was over and done with, or, or by the early 1900s, it was kind of over and done with. Mm-hmm. You find remnants of it in um, <clears throat> in modernism, but Henry James has all these great short stories that are sort of gothic aestheticist mysteries. Um, if anybody's interested, the, the way I kind of... <sighs> began to intellectualize this was in undergrad one of my my undergrad professors was actually a a a scholar of the gothic and um if you're interested at all look up the dude uh john paul rakelme r-i-q-u-e-l-m-e um really fascinating dude who has this kind of like running large-scale theory that aestheticism and the gothic are kind of like two sides of the same coin Hmm. by the time you get to the the 19th century because um aestheticism represents this antisocial tendency in england right um in the victorian era the the whole impulse is towards um curtailing the personal for the sake of the social yeah and what is pleasure if not antisocial so you get something like dorian gray which is kind of like this weird quintessential gothic novel that um is absolutely antisocial, but it's hard to call Dorian evil at certain points. Sure, sure. Okay, so anyway, um, Henry James, <laughs> in between, Henry James wrote a, a, a bunch of complicated novels early on. Uh, they didn't sell. He was frustrated and annoyed and wrote these kind of bizarre stories which are and are not like his later novels, mm-hmm. but they're these weird gothic aestheticist mysteries, and already the gothic in James is kind of like a laughable stereotype. Um, it, it's something that's sort of like like what we would mock in the goth kids today, I guess, or what <laughs> sort of, you know, uh, pray to. But... Um, the, it's sort of like this is useless this is silly this is over affected yeah right 
Um, but you find remnants of the Gothic in modernism. Eliot rips off the Brides of Dracula in the Wasteland. It's one whole section of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you find these sort of Gothic tinges with the bats and vampirism all throughout James Joyce. Um, it keeps pinging here and there and then sort of falls to the wayside. The way I think uh, it sort of reemerged in the 80s was as the failure of the hippies. Okay. Uh, the failure yeah. of the counterculture. Um, you know, the the way the counterculture was sort of interpreted or, well, it was anticipated and interpreted. Yeah. Uh, look at something like Zabriskie Point, which interprets the counterculture as basically nihilistic, uh, hedonistic, apocalyptic craziness. Yeah. Right? And then whatever the actual counterculture was manson became the poster boy for what it would be yeah right um the manson murders basically sort of fulfilled the prophecy that the culture like they they fulfilled the cultural anxiety yeah yeah it it was it was it was almost uh not to get too conspiratorial but it was almost too perfect as a as a mode to discredit the counterculture yeah, I, I mean, exactly. And so there's this way in which the Gothic emerges as the trappings of that counterculture, but recognizing that it's doomed to failure. So yeah, instead yeah. of um, instead of do your own thing or out there, it's sort of a counterculture that embraces the outsider status. Yeah. But that embrace of outsider status undoes whatever revolutionary gestures were there in the first place yeah like it's not so much a matter of embracing the outsider status to overturn anything it's embracing the outsider status to remain outside yeah where which is where you get something like nightmare before christmas yeah um nightmare okay let's sorry. <laughs> probably, probably the, the chintziest most commercial <laughs> appropriation of god aesthetic but 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 no I, well, you're onto something take me there Okay, so, all right. Let me take you back to when I was three. Um, I I had a couple of favorite books that I would get from the library all the time. Um, One was Mike Mulligan and his steam shovel, Mm because that was just really cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Tractors and... The art's great. I always love tractors. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The other were all those orange-backed Universal Monster books. Um, I don't know if you know those. Somebody who's listening know those, knows those. Oh, no, 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 no. I know exactly what you mean. It was like they had like orange and black covers, right? Yeah, there were these orange yeah. covers. And yeah. Black oh, my God. I loved those. Those those were kind of what I lived on. Yeah. I was a scared kid, and I was growing up in the satanic panic of the oh, yeah, 90s yeah. and the 90s where you know kids were emerging on milk cartons and everyone who you saw was going to abduct you and take you away and everything like that and so um i guess i just grew up anxious but the the you know i loved those monster things i loved that and it it was sort of like the 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 other two you know everyone telling me that everything was going to be okay at the same time as right um, when I was four years old, my next door neighbor told me about how we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust uh, perpetrated by the Soviet Union. But that was okay because they were atheists and going to hell, and we were all Christians. <laughs> going to hell. So, 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 so really, they, jokes on you, commies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
So there were all kinds of like weird pressures and stuff like that um, going on at the time that I kind of analyzed because I, I I sort of lived through them, right? Um, the 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 whole sort of goth move it before it was really clearly articulated. And you have to remember that I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Virginia. Yeah, uh, I remember. You know, my sister is five years older than me, and when she got her license she would uh just kind of as a kick take me along with her on whatever like weird stuff and she was getting to know all the art kids in high school and they were kind of like the weirdos and the outsiders before that had sort of like reified into an image yeah yeah and somebody had slipped her the idea of burton's a nightmare before christmas and she took me to see it like when it came out and for this kid who was, you know, I guess I must have been in like sixth or seventh grade, it, it clicked in this way. This was the easy antithesis of everything that the culture was mostly promoting. Yeah. You know, um, it hit home for a sixth or seventh grader. Now I can see it as the easy antithesis of whatever the, the culture was promoting and this kind of um, commodification and commercialization of that. Yeah, yeah. Right? But well, I, I guess you're right. I, I should have, I should have recalled the. Uh, there was a time before I, I had all this, you know, the the weight of context behind me, and I could, I could, yeah, a, I, I could see things as art itself presented to me, rather than as you know. Anyway, <laughs> that's a whole other Nightmare conversation. Before, <laughs> Nightmare Before Christmas is one of the most conservative movies out there because what does it actually say? <laughs> it undoes all of the revolutionary aspects it does. of the counterculture by I, emphasizing, okay. Stay in your lane, right? Everyone, go back Don't into your try boxes. Don't to mix with everyone, right? Else. Yeah. Um, at the same time, you have this weird kind of '90s. All right, you, you get that '90s exploration of sexuality with Dracula reinterpreted. The Bram Stoker's Dracula runs absolutely on a Foucauldian trip. Like it's it it is Bram Stoker, either he or his screenwriter reinterpreted dracula along Foucauldian lines i mean yeah. beat by beat oh you mean uh um, coppola and or screen yeah bram stoker was long yeah. dead of course i'm sorry not bram stoker uh <laughs> coppola coppola Duh. yeah sorry it's late at night um and then and that was anticipated by ann rice who kind of sort of did it before um coppola did uh, you have this weird internalization. You you have this moment, at, at least in America, you have this moment of, okay, no external threat. Let's start looking inward. And you have something like the X-Files, which is about that inward turn. What is happening in our backyard? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and it's it's not always bad or scary. I mean, X-Files, I think at its best, had a kind of exploratory attitude towards well it had a there are a lot of episodes that have a very affectionate attitude toward yeah. whatever monster is at work yeah yeah and of course and, 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 and you don't like, and you don't watch a show like x-files unless you feel a certain affection for the gray aliens or something like you know yeah yeah and, and then you have something like the blair witch project which looks in the backyard um it, that's one of the things they keep saying in the film this is america nobody gets lost in america yeah but it's it's all about being lost in America and what's back there. I mean, it's it's Hawthorne, yeah, to rights, yeah, yeah. Um, 
by the early aughts, you have the anti-authority aspects of Gothicism sort of rearing their heads. They've been corporatized Mm -hmm. and incorporated and co-opted, but it's that co-opted anti-authority. Yeah. So you have the rise in ghost hunter shit. Right, right. And this kind of belief in demon possession and exorcism, uh, the exorcism exorcism of Emily Rose. Uh, you know, the the Exorcist was that that horror movie which was basically anti-empirical from the get-go. Right. Like which is all about how the sciences cannot handle this ancient evil. It's kind of like Dracula <laughs> all over again. Um Exorcism oh, of Emily Rose and, uh, is that point of contact that just reinstates that. Yeah. Real quick, fun aside about uh, the Exorcist, the yeah. uh, the the name that the uh, author of the novel selected to to be like the ancient evil demon or whatever, Pazuzu, um, yeah, was uh, I, I learned recently was in the Akkadian in the, in the Mesopotamian and Assyrian tradition was a guardian spirit to protect mothers in childbirth. Uh, it was actually a, it was actually <laughs> well, a very that? good spirit that you wanted in your house when things were going down anyway just like a fun aside (laughs) uh corporatist authoritarian uh misogynist tropes Uh, who knows or maybe just you know pulling some uh sufficiently semitic sounding weird name out of a hat you know right well so in the 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 early aughts you have that sort of anti-authoritarian but totally authoritarian anti-authoritarian no yeah um in the late aughts you basically have the domesticated gothic you have things like true blood twilight and 50 shades of gray which i want to argue are all about a money fantasy yeah um it's a fetishization about endless wealth and power i mean that that's sort of like what what happens in in all of those things um you know i i could i i hate to say it but i i could see the rise of trump coming from a mile away with the rise of 50 shades of gray which is not about a kink at all 50 shades of gray and twilight because you know they're kind of the same thing right right it's yeah the 50 shades all... of gray is literally a, a a fan fiction of twilight with you know, control f to change the names yeah um but it, it's all money fantasy yeah it's all yeah. money and power uh, but what you start seeing now or more recently, I think, um, and, and one more time, this is skimming the surfaces. And th- this is us riffing at the end to try oh, to sure. bring it to a close. <laughs> um, I, 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 I'm talking broadly about horror and the gothic. What you've been seeing in the past like five, ten years or so is the gothic or the horror as a place to explore trauma either hmm, uh, yeah. personal trauma, interpersonal trauma, political trauma, social trauma, or, or however you want to define it. I'm thinking of Hereditary, The Witch, and Babadook. Oh, or, uh, or Get Out. Um, or Get Out. Yeah, yeah Get Out yeah. is another great one. Um, uh, it Follows. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So much uh, horror and gothic material now. Um, it's using those trappings to really sort of explore trauma uh what it means to be in pain what it means to hurt what it means to fight back under those circumstances yeah um uh the witch is one of those things which i think is absolutely a feminist film about um i i think 
that is the antithesis to something like The Craft or Nightmare Before Christmas, where it's not about staying in your lane. It's not about the reification of the old tropes. It's about, yeah, tear the patriarchal order down and just burn it. Yeah. Um, it's kind of amazing how it does that. But anyway, um, so I that, that, that sort of brings it, I guess, away from the history of the Gothic per se and into this kind of cultural production of horror mm-hmm. uh, in a very sort of facile uh, brief <laughs> skimming the surface way. And I want to make sure everybody knows that I'm not this dumb. Um, I'm not <laughs> usually this facile. But those are some ways that you can begin to think about conceptualizing yeah. the Gothic in in the 21st century. Yeah, and, and um, I think um, I think as always, the something I've always cautioned uh, everyone who uh, whoever listens to any podcast whatsoever, and especially anyone that I have anything to do with, because I am definitely half-assed. <laughs> if any of this sounds interesting, please understand that you are getting like a scintilla of the actual interesting content to be had out of something. So if any of this sounds interesting or something you want to dig into, I urge you to please go dig into it to actually find out cool stuff about it. Yeah. So that's, that's our, our, I mean, I feel like this isn't even one oh one. This is like oh nine nine remedial session. That's right. That's there, right. These are some, some, I suppose, touchstones that you can, hit on uh, historically to begin to see the present in the past or the past in the present. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's what's sort of useful about thinking about the Gothic historically is so much of the stuff is still with us and it's got uh, roots really far down there. Um, it's not just... Uh, whatever uh, dark distortion pedal band that you're listening to at the moment, it, it goes back a long ways, and in a lot of ways, it's been replicating itself with very little variation. Yeah, yeah. For about 200 years now, which which is fascinating. I think the, the durability of so many of the kind of the hallmarks and tropes. Um, it certainly has to be. It has to be speaking to something. Enduring, I guess at least something enduring in industrialized society, you know, where, where this, yeah. and I guess science fiction is kind of a, a similar, you know, all these, you know, horror, you know, all these sort of kissing cousin genres. I, I'm, I'm developing in my mind a, um, I'm sure actual literary critics have, have developed this and I'll have to look into it, but like the, the fact that this all came around during the inception of the, the kind of mass industrialized society that Great Britain and Western Europe then exported to the rest of the world. That has to mean something, um, but I guess at the at the end of the day, though, I, Claude, thank you for answering my question about how <laughs> how how this if term I came did. around. If you did, and and you know what, what's even better than answering a question is raising a thousand more, and that's something that we are all we are both very good at, and. Um, uh, I, I guess we can we can we can wrap it up for now. But uh, thanks you for a wonderful agoraphobia uh take on the gothic a survey of the gothic where it comes from where it's going and um i i don't know i'm gonna go i'm gonna go search for some uh some cool goth rock uh, live video from the 80s man all right man uh if i can uh just put in one thing yeah and a great overlooked just art punk expressionist creepy band from new york in the early 80s live skull Live skull. Uh, the name says it all. Yeah. All right. But, sweet. Um, 
somewhere between Joy Division and early Sonic Youth. I, uh, if you're looking for gothic, I think that's up your alley. Good God, dude. I am a thousand percent there. That is incredible. All right, man. Well, right. Uh, And on that note, Agoraphobia out. <laughs> Agoraphobia out. Please listen to The Cannonball if you've enjoyed this episode of Agoraphobia. I am Daniel, and uh, with me, as always, has been Claude. And uh, we'll catch you guys later. All right. Take care. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back, and a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Oh.